We've perhaps had the first stage of the revolution, but there's still very much um, an ongoing experimentation, which is, is really exciting. Hello and welcome to the ex podcast. I am David Clark. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is, well, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Williams, winemaker and co-owner of The Foundry. He produces single vineyard wines from Stellenbosch and one from the Fuhr Paderberg. He recently left his day job of 16 years, which was a cellar master and winemaker at Mealist Estate, which is one of the grand old properties in Stellenbosch. Their top wine, Rubicon, a Bordeaux-styled blend, has been a must-buy for wine lovers in South Africa since probably the early 80s. Chris seemingly has an insatiable inquisitive where wine is concerned, and he's always looking to learn and improve. He's very well read and is always an interesting and engaging person to talk to, and not only on the subject of wine. He just completed his first vintage outside Millists since 2004, so I thought it would be a good time and an interesting to document this moment in his journey. I give you Chris Williams. Hi, I'm Chris Williams, um, and uh, up until very recently, I have uh, been um, the cellar master at Millists Estate. Late last year, I decided to um, to focus on my own brand, which is called the Foundry, uh, which I started uh, in 2001. And I've been very fortunate to be able to do uh, to work at Mealist and and grow my own brand uh, over the, over that time. Uh, but it became clear over the last sort of couple of years that the foundry really needed uh, my full time attention. Left Mealist um, in December, and in the meantime, uh, we had set up. Uh, well, we were in the process of setting up a little winery at my partner's farm in the Paderberg. Uh, his name is James Reed, and um, so we we got that uh, more or less set up in time for harvest this year. And uh, yeah, it was, it's been uh, really great because we've just completed our first harvest in our own home cellar um, out in the Paderberg. Um, and we've made, I think we've made some quite interesting wines. We've done our wines that we've had in the lineup for the last few years, uh, such, such as the Viognier, the Grenache Blanc, the Roussan, Syrah and Grenache Noir. But we've got a couple of other new things as well, which are just finishing off ferment and finishing off malolactic. Um, and we'll see how what comes out of that process. So yeah, it's been a very uh, a lot of lot of change, uh, which has been great. I think um, a lot of challenges with the harvest, um, as you can expect from working in a new place. But I think that's uh, it's uh, opened up some good um, uh, ways of looking at making new wines and, and new techniques. And uh, I think in a few months' time, we'll really start to get a sense of what's come out of that process. So Mealist is a one of the grand old names of South African wine, um, being one of the uh, sort of the grand estates of Stellenbosch. How did you end up there? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty plum position. Um, yeah, um, I was very, for, I've, I've been very lucky in my life, David, in many ways. Um, when I finished, uh, I graduated at Elsenburg in 1994, which was probably the, the best year ever to... <laughs> Sorry, for those who don't know, just explain what Elsenburg is. Uh, it's, a, it's an agricultural school uh, based in Stellenbosch, um, offering a broad range of agricultural courses, but... Um, it's probably one of the, the, well, a lot of really great winemakers from South Africa graduated from the uh, viticulture technology programs at Elsenburg. It seems so, to me that, they, that winemakers either go through Elsenburg or they go through Stellenbosch Uni and do a, a BSc. That's right. Uh, that's, that's pretty much that's the only yeah. two avenues that I've seen for formal education in, in viticulture yeah, and vinification. 
That, that's true. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I graduated there in 1994 um, and uh, was very fortunate to, uh, was looking for a job and, and got a job at Mealist as a, as a, a harvest intern, I suppose would be the, the, the term we use, um, with a, a guy called Giorgio Dalicia, a lovely, great uh, uh, Italian cellar master at the time. And um, uh, after doing the first season, I stayed on for six years in total and then um, left uh, to do a couple of other things for a couple of years and also to start the foundry. Um, but then in 2004, Giorgio retired and, and I went back to Mealist in charge of the winemaking and uh, was there from 04 until the end of 2019. But as I said, I had taken Mealist to, to where I would have liked to have seen it. Um, the foundry uh, was growing and, and, and wanted uh, my attention to, to really take it to the next level. So it was a difficult decision because I was, yeah, this is a great place. It's almost like a family, a family to me. Um, but uh, the time came to, you know, turning 50 as well this year. Uh, the time came to really decide what to do for the next 15 years of my life. So um, uh, the foundry was a natural sort of uh, progression for me. It's, you know, we've, we've made the five wines over the last couple of years. And I've also now had a couple of ideas about what some other projects that I would like to just start playing around with and, and experimenting and, and seeing what comes out of that because, you know, great wines aren't, uh, aren't thought up, you know, over the course of one vintage. It's a, it's a process of, of discovering or planting great vineyards and, and then uh, turning it into, into interesting wines. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's been an exciting uh, couple of months for me. Just a couple more questions on meal list. Um, you called yourself and Giorgio the cellar master, not the winemaker. Um, what's, yeah. what's, the, what's, your, what, what's the difference between that in your mind in terms of nomenclature? Uh, well, the, the only reason <laughs> at Mielis, there was never, there never seemed to have been a winemaker. The, the person in charge of the winemaking has always been the cellar master, which is a, okay. probably a slight digression from uh, certainly uh, in France where they have the maître de chez and all those different titles. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, to be honest, there wasn't a huge uh, force of winemakers. It was uh, for quite a long time, it was just myself and my team. Um, and then subsequently we bought uh, an assistant winemaker and, and then um, they graduated up to winemaker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these titles are, are quite flexible and, and not set in stone. And because Mealist uh, is very much in that kind of grand old estate mold, uh, the cellar master was the term used to the person who got blamed if something went wrong. So yeah, right. it's, uh, <laughs> it's a mantle that I, that I took on from Giorgio's time and, um, uh, and, and just continued with it. I mean, Hannes Meiber is the um, is the owner of Mealist and sort of the the beating heart of the of the of the brand, at least from the outside. Yeah. Is he is he pretty much responsible for the stylistic choices of the wines and and the and the market positioning, et cetera, et cetera, or is that a collaborative effort? Um, I think it's it's a it's a collaborative effort, and also it's it's based on a sort of a historical evolution over time. So, the, you know, year to year, we, we, uh, when I was there, we, you know, we looked at the, the vintage together, uh, uh, myself and him and, and, and the team as well that, that was involved there. But I, one of the very nice things about uh, my job at Mealist is that I was given a lot of leeway and freedom. Um, and I think that was because from very early on, my, my aesthetics and my, the style of wines that I uh, like to drink and, and really loved were, were in tune with, with Mealist and, and, and historically what had been done there. And I always saw my job was merely a, a, as evolving and improving that style rather than reinventing the wheel from year to year. So, I mean, Mealist always had a, a well-defined house style. Uh, and then uh, over the years, as you know, new vineyards came into production, new, new clones, um, new techniques be discovered, experimented and tried. You know, there was a, a very nice, progressive, slow 
evolution. And I think probably the, the, the biggest changes that we that were made earlier on were more a question of, of housekeeping, um, you know, bringing bottling on back onto the estate, eliminating vineyards that weren't performing, and then over the years, um, making sure that we were planting the right sort of clones in the right area, the right varieties. Um, so yeah, it's always been a very, um, I, I think, a positive evolution. We've never, we've never gone the route of uh, revolution, you know, you know, changing everything. It's always been a, a very steady uh, response to, to changes in, in the, the terroir that we were getting. Um, but having said all of that, we'd also, I think one, another part of my job, which I really enjoyed, was, was uh, going out and, and, and tasting the wines with people and getting feedback. Um, so it was very much a dual process. It was, it was trying to express uh, the estate historically and the changes at the estate, but also you know, responding to people that, that love the Mealist wines. And, and I've never seen such sort of devotion for, for a wine brand, you know, being in the market and, and meeting those people and seeing, you know, developing the wines uh, that they were also responding to over time. Um, so that, you know, the stylistically and quality wise, um, it's always been a very much a collaborative effort between uh, the cellar master or the winemaker at the time, the, the owner, other people involved, the viticulturist also was involved in that process. Um, and then, you know, with always with an eye to what are our uh, people who love our wines and, and really, you know, or mealist groupies, what do, what do they like and what do they like in the wines and, develop and, and follow that as well? I think you're right. I think mealist, especially the Rubicon label, has a fervent uh, following. Ever since I've been involved in South African wine, that has always been seen to be a sought after wine. Maybe not as sort of slick and cool as it once was, but certainly no lack of passionate supporters as a sort of a more classic, dependable wine rather than a, a flashy new wave avant-garde style. It's a, it's a very impressive uh, feat, I think, because there's not many of those around anymore that were sort of at the top of people's shopping lists you know, 20 years ago, and those wine, and that wine still is at the top of people's shopping list. So congratulations for that. Thanks, David. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you know, like all things these things go through a, a process of, of evolution and you know in the early days in the sort of late 70s early 80s rubicon um was the sort of avant-garde um uh, new trendy wine and and um and i and, and that was great but i think all these sorts of things eventually have to become iconic and classic in their own sense and, and that's what's great about i think the wine world and, and i think certainly south africa at the moment is that you see the sort of churning of of new energy and vitality that then becomes sort of solidified into really great wines with, with good track records. And there's this, ever, there's this never ending kind of um, reinvention which is taking place. And, and the, the classics which are timeless, they, they tend to entrench themselves and last and, and develop. And then there's always this new kind of um, uh, uh, energy and, and new wines coming onto the market. And, and it's, a, it's a very exciting, as you know, you know having lived here for, for over 10 years, it's a very exciting place and has been for that time to, to, to make wines. It's kind of been a bit like the Wild West in a very positive way. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit like uh, how they spoke about sort of uh, London culturally during the 60s. It sort of seems that similar rate of change in the wine industry in, in South Africa in, in the last, uh, well, at, at least in the last 10 years, as you say. It's been incredible. The jump from, from Cape Wine 2006 to Cape Wine 2012 was insane in terms of the, the stylistic, the styles that were available, the quality, the uniqueness, transparency of the wines. Yeah, it's been an incredible rate of change. And it's going to be very interesting to see if that change continues and if the, because uh, obviously with change, there's, there's, there's births and there's deaths. 
and it'll be yeah. interesting to see if the if the if the if the deaths of, of different brands will be the old guard unwilling to change or a combination of new brands that don't quite get the economy of scale to continue as more and more brands come onto the market it's going to be very interesting to see how that uh disperses itself uh naturally uh it, with supply and demand and pricing etc cetera, etc cetera. just wanted to ask you quickly um well maybe not quickly maybe slowly um <laughs> about winemakers in south africa um who are employed by a uh, a relatively large illustrious state like mealist um, having their own brand uh, on the side, it, it seems to end well. It always ends with the with that winemaker leaving the the major brand and, and working on their own project. Um, yeah, and and it can go from both ways. I mean, you seem to have have left really amicably, and you know, obviously, you've uh, I know you've uh, you've put the uh, let them know that you're there to to assist if you need to be in in, in a consulting capacity. Uh, that seems to have been managed very very well. Other other uh, uh, producers, I mean Duncan Savage comes to mind with Cape Point. That that seemed to be a very um, non amicable uh, disengagement. Yeah. It just maybe your thoughts on 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 the is it due to uh, brands not paying their winemakers, their head winemakers or their cellar masters enough in the fact that they want to start their own brand? Or is it just a, an ego uh, situation with winemakers? They just want to put their own name on their bottle or have them uh, or a combination of both? Or is it is it more financial or is it more uh, philosophical, do you think? Well, I can only speak in my own case. Um, yeah. But in my, in my case, uh, it was very much a philosoph- philosophical uh, desire um, uh, and Hannes, the owner of Milas, you know, he, he knew um, that there would come a time uh, when I would, would want to go on my own, uh, and you know, so that's a, that was a natural progression. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you know, it's I think as a winemaker, I was very fortunate to work for 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 a, a company like Milas who allowed me um, to do that. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the reasons why, and I consider it a success, a very successful partnership. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is because I was always very uh, open about what I was doing. And I think um, there was never any doubt about my commitment to what I was doing for Mealist. And, you know, that, and that clearly from the, from the results that came out, uh, you know, just... Uh, so as part of that, when you were traveling and... Because obviously one of the, the, the huge responsibilities for seller master or head winemaker is to actually market the wines um, yeah. in, in export markets and in the domestic market as well. So if you were overseas, say, in London doing on a, on a Mealist trip, what was your thoughts on... Uh, was there an understanding that you would do, you know, a one day every four for for foundry, or was it a more fluid arrangement than that, or was it just so? Well, I'm here for mealist, I'll do mealist. If I'm here for foundry, I'll do foundry. Yeah, it was it was more fluid. Um, and and again, you know, foundry was very it was at, at the time, and it was a very small brand. The volumes were, were limited. Um, and I with the foundry, because I, w- I was spending most of my time with mealist, I wanted the, the wines that I was producing for the foundry. I wanted them just to sell quite naturally through the market. I didn't want to, I never wanted to be in a position where I had to go and beat the pavements to, to promote and sell the foundry. And so it was quite a, it's a nice synergy. And the foundry, you know, philosophically allowed me to, to do different things that I was doing at Mealist, uh, different varieties, different techniques, but all the, all the while having a, uh, uh, you know, being part of a, a great uh, old classic estate like Mealist was also, um, uh, it was a privilege for me. So, um, and I and I think I quite successfully managed to juggle those two roles uh, well over the years. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, um, it, it, there came a time, and it's, and it's not a 
it, it wasn't a big surprise, you know, I, I, something I've been working towards is to eventually go on my own, you know, because with, with a brand like Mealist, one, one, one has got a lifespan, one's got a shelf life uh, as a wine, as a winemaker, or, you know, unless you're part owner or owner of the business, you know, the, you, 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 you kind of go through it and then there comes a time when uh, it's time to move on. And I always wanted to leave Mealist at a point where it was, um, you know, really doing well and the wines were respected, the vineyards were looking good. And, and I think we, we, we got it to that point and, and stepping into the foundry was a natural progression. Uh, I, I still enjoy a very good relationship uh, with everyone there. I, in fact, my house still overlooks the vineyards. Uh, I, you know, and I still see Hannes uh, socially as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a very amicable separation. Um, it's been, it's I, been certainly from an outside point of view, it's been one of the most amicable one separations that I've seen. I, I know that um, you were through agreement that you, were, you weren't going to produce any wines that Mealist produces. So obviously Mealist does a, a Bordeaux style blend, does a straight Cabernet, does a Chardonnay, does a Pinot Noir and a Merlot. So and I know that you, you, the foundry was never going to produce those. Was that part of the... Um, the amicable split up that there was that sort of agreement of there wasn't be going, going to be crossover in terms of stylistic choices. Yeah, absolutely. And and the only I think the only wine that we were producing at Mealist, which which at some point in the future I would like to uh, uh, pursue something similar would be the, would be a Pinot. Uh, as you as you know, a, a Pinot is sort of an abiding passion of mine. And so you know, but that that certainly didn't play a role. I think it's more difficult to to find interesting Pinot vineyards than it is to just come up with a Pinot in South Africa. So it certainly a, seems harder than <laughs> to to find really good Pinot vineyards. Yeah, um, absolutely. So so that, that wasn't really a, a player role in my thinking. Um, yeah, David, it was just uh, you know as I mentioned earlier, I turned fifty this this year and mm. um, wanted to be a little bit more of a master of my own fate in terms of how I spend my time. And so, and, you know, and, and, and I, I look back at my career with Mealist with great fondness uh, and pride. And uh, it was just that, that I felt the time was right. To go and no, fair enough. Thing. Absolutely. No, no. Sorry, I didn't want to harp on um, about Mealist. No. It has been such a big chunk of your, um, your time in wine in South Africa that I thought we'll give it its, its, its due. And it does sort of inform uh, what the foundry has done over the last, what, 19 years and yeah. we'll continue to do in the future. So at the moment, you're producing five single variety wines, four from Stellenbosch, one from Fuhr Paderberg. So the got the Grenache Blanc, uh, which is a bit of an unusual variety in South Africa um, in terms of it's not that common. Got a, a Viognier, a Roussan, a Grenache Noir, and a Syrah. So, so talk, talk to us about the Grenache Blanc. That's probably, uh, in recent times, your most the, the wine that's most associated with the foundry, especially in South Africa, due to the the Platter Five Star and the, you know, Grenache Blanc of the year and the white wine of the year a couple of years ago. Uh, talk us through that wine. Yeah, uh, so I think all the, all the wines that we've been making in the foundry have, um, I, I would love to say it formed part of a very precise and well thought out plan, uh, but that's not the case. Um, you know, the, 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 in the beginning, 2001, we just wanted to, well, I just knew that there was a lot of uh, really interesting vineyards uh, scattered throughout the Cape, not only old vineyards of classical varieties, but also new, new stuff being planted. And I just wanted some, the foundry was envisaged to be a, just a, a portal to, to kind of go and find that stuff and, and, and bring it into, into the market with, a, with my particular aesthetic that I liked about from, from a winemaking point of view and the kinds of wines I like to drink. And so um, the, the portfolio of wines, obviously now it's five single vineyard, single variety, Rhone varieties, but that certainly wasn't the plan in the beginning. Um, and the, the wines that make up the portfolio now, or th these have just sort of 
come onto my radar, uh, either um, tangentially, you know, just uh, discovering them as I uh, go through the Cape and, and see vineyards and meet people. Or friends and, and colleagues have phoned me up and said, wow, this is really interesting thing that you've planted or that my neighbor's got. And gone and had a look and, and just really uh, in, been impressed by particularly the site and the people that were involved with, with the, the planting of those vineyards. And so, the, you know, we, over the years, we've made lots of different things, um, discarded quite a few of them. And, and the, so the, the five that we have are the ones that I feel have shown real promise for evolution and development. And the Grenache Blanc, my partner, James, uh, in, in the business, he bought a farm in the Paderberg in 2009. And um, in the course of his sort of settling in there, discovered this vineyard of Grenache Blanc, uh, which we, we vinified in 2009 for the first time. And, and that really it shot, you know, it shot the lights out in terms of the quality that we had. And 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 the um, the kudos that the wine got in the market. So it was uh, it was fortunate it was just uh, fortunate that it, it happened to be a Rhone variety and a, and a sort of an unsung Rhone variety. Mm. Uh, obviously a bit of Grenache Blanc in Spain as well, but um, you know I think in, in in France it tends to be looked down as a bit of a volume producer. And uh, there was a, a really nice kind of um, confluence of factors. I, I think it happened to be planted in a very good area, suited the variety well. Um, and the style of winemaking that I, um, I, I applied in, in, to the variety at the time and, and progressively over the years, it just brought out something really interesting and unique, which um, uh, people have, in, customers have, wine lovers have really enjoyed. So yeah, it, 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 it wasn't a, a focus particularly to go and find um, these Rhone varieties. Uh, it's just uh, um, over time, that's what's kind of uh, come up. And then uh, I think another factor which is, is often overlooked is that all of the five wines that we produce are grown on decomposed granite soils. Mm. And again, this, uh, I discovered that only doing sort of retrospectively, doing some research on the wines. Uh, wow, all five of these vineyards happen to be on decomposed granite of various forms at different locations. And I think that, that brings a certain kind of clarity and purity to the wines. Which, I mean, uh, I've, I've drank a lot of wines with you and tasted a lot of wines uh, with you, and you tend to look for that, or you, look, you tend to sort of gravitate towards those sort of style of wines, don't you? Ones that are a bit more transparent and pure and uh, a little bit more, um, less weighty, and a little bit more fi a bit fi finer, a bit more elegant, a little bit more nuanced rather than powerful. Uh, you know, that, absolutely, though. You know, that's the kinds of wines I like to drink. And yeah. with the foundry, uh, I've been very fortunate is that that's the kind of wine I'm, I want to make as well. In some ways, I don't, um, I don't follow the market slavishly. I, I, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to make wines that I, I, I like and want to express. Um, you know, if you mm. want to make a lot of money, don't, don't go into the, the wine business, as you know. Mm. There are other ways to make a, a more comfortable living. But I think most people who, who go into the, the wine, wine business want to, it's, a, <clears throat> it's for a love of a large degree. And so, you know, why, why make uh, rubbish or why make, you know, mass-produced industrial wines? Rather, if you're, if you're a, a, someone like me, I'd rather make something that I can be proud of that I, that I want to um, cite. And that's, that informs very much the style of wines that I like to drink and then also the style of wines that I can make with the founder. So not everyone listening to this might know where the Fuhr Paderberg is. So it used to be, it's a, it's a, it's a wine of origin, a WO, um, listed on, uh, on um, Savas. It used to be part of the PAL WO. It still lies within the PAL region, but it's a ward of PAL. And it's sort of halfway between PAL Mountain and it just encompasses the uh, um, little bit of the valley floor and the start of the Paderberg, which is the southern border of the, uh, the Swatland uh, WO. So... In terms of the vineyard there, I mean, what sort of elevation, what sort of um, 
uh, aspect? Are you I'm assuming it's a southerly aspect on the southern slopes of the of the Paderberg? Is that would that be? Yeah, south easterly um, yeah. and not particularly high, uh, um, uh, around 80 meters above sea level. So not going mm -hmm. up the part of the mountains. Uh, this particular vineyard. Mm -hmm. Having said all of that. Um, uh, having spent the vintage there, um, having met more sort of fellow growers and producers there, and also if you look at some of the, historically the last 10 years, part of the sort of new wave of South African wine, some of the really interesting uh, and, and, and great vineyards that have been rediscovered and, and people vinifying from that area. I think the Fuhr part of it, although the, the name is perhaps a little bit cumbersome, I, I think it's an area which is, is going to start getting a lot more attention. Mm. Um, because again, you've got this beautiful uh, sort of granite mountain with sort of varying levels of decomposed granite soils around the foothills. Uh, and because you've got this kind of 360, obviously the north side is the Swartland, south side is, is Fuhr Paderberg. You've got these different aspects. And then within the mountain, you've got these different folded um, uh, valleys. Uh, there's, 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 there's so many interesting little patches of, of vineyards and, and, and land there that um, I think are gonna start being uh, expressed uh, certainly that's one of the projects that we're busy with at the foundries to is to really start mining in a positive sense the the, the for Paderberg for little little bits of quality and interest and character over time we're going to see more and more of that because there, there are some some very uh, well established there's some nice old vines there's some um, perhaps not old vines but certainly well established vineyards which our Grenache Blanc falls in, into that you know it was planted in 2006 mm -hmm. um, and I, I think as uh, once we get over this uh, strange uh, time we're in at the moment with this coronavirus lockdown. I was trying um, very hard not to mention it. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to date this podcast quite, quite yeah, yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, in a way, David, you know, it's um, in a way, without dwelling on it too much, it's kind uh, of given pause to reset and rethink and reflect, or certainly me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. time now. Yeah. It's just to really assess and uh, what what's worth doing, you know, cut away the the, the excess things that, that one is thinking about and, and been doing, and, and really trying to get to the core of what's uh, in winemaking sense, um, you know, what's worth doing, what's worth discovering, what's worth fighting for. Uh, yeah, no, 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 nothing focuses one's attention like the uh, realization of your uh, own mortality. <laughs> yeah, I found and, that and out. a bit of adversity, which is, is I, not I, a bad. I, I, I found that out last year, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of, I had a similar experience. Um, yeah. Like let's let's have a quick chat about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, 2002, I had a very serious motor accident, motorcycle accident and was lying in the hospital and very, very nearly uh, checked out. And so, again, I had the ability to, well, had the, had the opportunity to, to decide, you know, focus. You know, I was 32 at the time, you know, doing a lot of stupid things one does at that time, but also... Um, had been developing my career, and, and I really kind of. And you still, and at thirty-two, you tend to think yourself still as an individual. I think. Yeah. The, the fragility of uh, of maturity hasn't settled in yet. <laughs> no, true. And, um, well, yeah, it didn't for me, you, <laughs> at least. Yeah, and, and and one can decide what to do with those sorts of lessons. And in my own case, again, yeah. you know, I can only from my own experience. But that was that was super serious, wasn't it? From all reports, I mean, I, yeah. I didn't know you then. So, I mean, how long were you in hospital for? Uh, six weeks, uh, yeah, that's, in, in that's... five weeks, uh, the, I had a, a sort of a, a whole slew of doctors and once I'd made it through and, you know, was sort of in recovery, they told me, listen, buddy, you know, we, we thought you were going to go. It was just a question yeah, of time. Right. We were just going through the motions. Mm. Uh, that's a bit of a wake up call for me. Um, 
So I thought, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Uh, what, what do I have power over and, and agency over? And I thought, well, the career is some, my career is something I really love. It's something that interests me. It, it, it captivates my imagination. So I've tried to, I've tried to bring those lessons of, of mortality to, to what I've been doing the last 20 years. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, I, I, I have no real um, uh, desire to bring, to leave a legacy, but what I do want to do is, is create what I've always wanted to do with, with, my, with the wines that I make is something that in a small way brings pleasure to people's lives, brings enjoyment um, and, and something that, that you know, interests me and, and, and fires my imagination. And I think that's, that's one of the things one, one can ask from life. You know, if you've got a certain amount of time in, in your life and again, we're going through a process now, which, which reminds us of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want to, waste your time? Do you want to uh, chase a pension or do you want to uh, chase your passion? And, and, I, and I've always thought passion is something which, uh, you know, if you do it well, it'll look after you um, materially, but also more sort of uh, philosophically, spiritually, you know, if you, you, you do something that you love, it, it kind of feeds your soul. And, and that's, that's, that's always been what I, what I wanted to do. And if it uh, happens to pay for a very expensive burgundy habit along the way, all the better, I guess. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> <laughs> one has to uh, you have to you have to keep that keep firing that passion you know absolutely you have to feed it for sure yeah you got to feed it and, and keep firing <laughs> it. If you, you know if you find that you're getting bored by the wines you drink go and find something else uh, mm. um, you know and that's what's been great you know being in South Africa you know we I grew up in a very closed time in our history and and came of age in, in a time when everything was opening up so you know managed to travel a lot work overseas taste a whole wave of new kinds of wines names which we've never even heard of um, and that just keeps feeding the passion and, and, and uh, you know, making one want to be part of that, that global world of, of, of wine and, and, and gastronomy and enjoyment. And it's, it's kind of like a, a fellowship. Uh, uh, and as you know, you go to countries, you know, as a, as, a, as a person in the wine industry, you are received usually with great warmth and generosity of spirit. And so it's, just, it's a wonderful career to be in. It's a wonderful world to be part of. Uh, and on the food side of things as well, in restaurants, the same. If uh, when I was working in restaurants, I'd go dine at another restaurant, even not in the same city, in a different country. Um, and if they were aware that you were in the restaurant trade, you would be received and treated very, very differently um, in, 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 in an absolute positive way. But you're right about the wine industry, wherever you go. Uh, if you're in the industry, people tend to look after you with warmth and with generosity and, and not, in a, yeah. not in a nepotistic sort of way. It really is just, you know, you're one of us, we understand your passion and let us show you ours. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. and often these, these sorts of places are ostensibly your, in inverted commas, your competition. Yes. You know, yeah. Which makes the wine, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, as you say, it's the same in the food, it's the same in the wine world. You know, you know, South Africa, we've got a lot of, you know, my generation, perhaps younger, we really, we compete with each other, but there's this incredible, it's kind of a weird dynamic where we, we help each other, we compete with each other, we share ideas, and that, that overflows to, to other countries as well, you know. Um, mm. And sure, you know, maybe uh, it makes you have to work harder on the sales side, but there's this, as I say, it's um, uh, sort of a, a fellowship of, of, of people who, I, I guess we're all hedonists in a weird kind of way, because it's food and wine and and we, we, we kind of speak the same language, um, which is, uh, it's, it's a great business. I don't think you get the same kind of friendship and fellowship in the insurance business, for example, or the mechanical engineering world. It's just to use two, two examples. <laughs> Maybe not. I, I wouldn't know, to be honest. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to speak on their behalf, but um, no, it, it does certainly seem 
Yeah, and when, when you're out and when you're meeting uh, people for the first time and you say you're in the wine industry or the restaurant industry, people are, are super interested in what you're doing. If yeah. you say you're an accountant or uh, you're an engineer, they quickly move on to some other subjects. So there is a, a hedonistic um, aspect to what we do for sure. Talking about yeah. hedonism, let's talk about your Viognier. What a, what a segue that was. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. So, Viognier is one of the one of the the uh, what the second wine you um, you brought out the, the Syrah first, and then the the Viognier yes. was the second. Um, well, um, and if I remember correctly, there was there was there were there were, there were, there were one wine originally. And they were, um, but there was actually strictly speaking the third wine. There was a very oh. uh, there was vintage of a wine called Double Barrel, which. Um, let's put that to one side. You might you might hear that name again in the future. Uh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> the, you, the Viognier. Are, um, are, you, are you putting was, things in two hundred percent new oak again, Chris? No, no, I never, <laughs> never, never do that. Um, no, it doesn't refer to the the, the, the oak. But anyway, uh, let, let's let's uh, say we'll revisit that in the future. But the Viognier okay. at the time it was very fashionable, as you may remember, to to co-ferment um, Viognier with, with Syrah with a bit of Viognier. Um, and I, I also, um, uh, yeah, that's sort of early 2000s. I mean, that was when I yeah, first. Yeah, 04 and 05. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, sorry. Uh, then I, you know, I thought, yeah, it was a, it was a nice little f- flirtation, but it's not something that I, I thought uh, really expressed what I was wanting to do from the particular venues that I was working with. But as, a, as a, again, as sort of a, um, a byproduct of that process, I, I made some Viognier white wine um, in 04, and um, it became, uh, uh, you know, over. I was very, I didn't have a particular love for Viognier as a single variety, but I really loved the character that I was getting, um, uh, certainly from 06, 07, from this particular vineyard, which is, uh, which is very close, actually right next door to Mielis. And so, and, and I, th- I think because it's quite a cool site, it's very close to the sea, gave a, a style of wine, which was much more linear, um, much more mineral, again, those, those crystalline, those, those, those words that are often used for the wines that I like. Um, but still with that opulence and sort of slightly decadent character of, of great, you know, Northern Rhone, Condrio, those sorts of things. So for me, the, the Viognier has been a, like a tightrope wine. It's, it's, it's had that opulence, that richness, that texture, but not to the degree of being, you know, saccharine or sickly. Um, but again, that's, that's measured with a little bit more of that nervy, uh, energetic um, minerality, that, that slightly higher acidity, lower alcohol, more minerally notes. Um, uh, so I think that's why the Viognier's people have enjoyed it because it, it does give you elements of what you expect from Viognier, but it, it, it keeps it very focused and precise because of the acidity, the, the, that, that sort of almost chalkiness, that, that crystalline character that the wine also seems to show. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously Viognier can, uh, is known to get out of hand very quickly in terms of voluptuousness and sort of uh, muffin top type of, yeah. of wines. Um, uh, which I'm quickly developing while uh, in uh, in lockdown, as I <laughs> as I eat and drink Muffin everything inside. Sexy, David. Oh, I, I hope so, because because uh, <laughs> I don't have much choice, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do have a choice, but it's not a choice I want to make. And so, yeah, it is for me certainly one of the the more finessed or finer Viognier's, along with probably the other one that comes to mind is uh, Samantha O'Keefe's. Lismore yeah. uh, Viognier. They're probably the two. Uh, not that there's a whole bunch of Viogniers available in South Africa, but certainly at the higher end, at this sort of quality level, they're the ones that two. They're the two wines that, that really stick their heads above the rest of the pack. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the other white wine you also make is, for me, I think your best wine, even though platter tasters uh, disagree. Um, yeah, uh, is the Rusan. 
which is yeah. probably even less known than Grenache Blanc in terms probably, of... Probably, yeah. Yeah, and people at least know Grenache from Grenache Noir. People think that Roussan is a, a proprietary name, not a not a, um, a varietal name here in yeah. in uh, in South Africa because there's so little of it around. Um, yeah. I mean, the only other one I can think of is Ken Forrester. There may be others that I'm missing, but are you aware of any other straight Roussans um, that are made uh, consistently? I mean, obviously, people can make have made wines here and there as a sort of a like an R and D yeah. project or a seller club type of vibe. But um, is there any I other Roussans? Um, oh, okay. I think Bellingham does one. Um, and Rustenberg for many years, Rustenberg actually pioneered the Roussan in South Africa. Recently, um, they've taken a decision not to bottle that anymore. But yeah, it, it was tasting those that wine, and then also um, some wines from from France, which really uh, again made me take notice of Roussan as a variety. And, uh, con- you know, coincidentally, farm very close to Mielis. Uh, I, I know the grower there, and he came to me and said, you know, we've, someone bought the farm and it had this one hectare block of Roussan on it. And so I said, well, you know, <laughs> that's exactly the kind of thing that I like to investigate. So 2010 made our first Roussan. And yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think I have to agree with you. Uh, it's certainly the wine, the white wine that I'm doing, which reflects most closely my sort of interest and stylistic preference. Um, and it's probably the, a bit like Pinot. It's, it doesn't um, reveal itself very quickly to you as a grape variety and then also as a wine. For, for potential quality, um, you know, that's, there's such an enormous amount of complexity and depth to the wines that are, that are made from Roussan that uh, very, the founder of Roussan is very much uh, an evolving and developing project. And I think we're in a good place now because any kind of um, depth in quality and character is coming purely from vine age. Yeah, and the, the Roussan for me sits separately to the uh, Grenache uh, Blanc and the Viognier uh, in the in the foundry stable as having uh, more layers of texture. Yes, r- real sort of um, tactile uh, interest. Not to say the others are, are syrupy and boring, but there is an extra depth of interest in the palate. Not just a flavour, but actually how the wine feels and how it leaves your mouth and how it uh, how the acid interacts uh, with the fruit. And that sort of mineral component, which is, and, and it tends to be, at least for me, the driest of the three wines in flavour in terms of um, the minerality comes through at the end rather than fruit sweetness. Yeah, it's it's a wine that relies uh, more on, as you say, texture, phenolics, minerality, acidity than it does particularly on fruitiness in inverted commas or fruit sweetness if i can be slightly geeky for a second one of, one of the things i discovered oh we're, 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 we're there already mate so you're fine <laughs> okay well let's hope we don't lose too many people along the way yeah. Rousseau, along with riesling um uh, are some of the most um, they've got the highest dry extract of the white varieties and what that means is that um you know in very kind of coarse layman's terms is that they have an enormously high mineral content um which is reflected in the acidity um, but also just in the, in the dry extract of the wine. And, that's, and that has a huge impact on how the wine is carried and, and feels in the mouth. And then you add to that um, the natural high acidity of Roussan and the natural phenolic character, which can be a drawback if it's not handled properly. And you put those three things together, and uh, there, is some, there is fruit sweetness to the wine, but it's very much a bit player in the wine. You know, you, you, bring, you have a white wine which, which has almost the intensity of flavor without the weight of a red wine. Um, and that's what I find so fascinating with Roussan. The grape itself is incredibly um, uh, difficult to work with. These tiny little berries, very little juice. It's almost like a, just a blob of pulp inside the, the, the berry itself. 
and they've got these thick leathery skins which kind of get this russet color which is where it gets its name from so you get very little juice but the juice that you do get is incredibly concentrated not particularly with sugar or fruit but with these other goodies like um, great phenolics minerality extract which i think um uh, makes Roussan one of the most interesting white varieties and then and you mentioned uh, our Roussan in, comp in comparison with other whites that we do you know this this deepening and this this this, um, uh, this depth of character and, and flavors coming out um it's probably a good um uh, way to to bring in you know the 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 next phase for the foundry i think would be uh, well is going to be um uh, looking at a, a red blend and a white blend uh, using uh, the varieties that we've got in our existing portfolio of wines, but then uh, perhaps drawing in some other ones which we've already started with this year, mm. and not necessarily having um, to stick to the uh, the Rhone blend um, uh, model. Um, you know, really, uh, we're going to see this year what what varieties that we've got in the cellar already are going to really make uh, wines that bring another level uh, of interest. It's a beautiful um, Cabernet Pinot Noir blends or something like that, mate. Um, you, you know, let's have a look. Um, I don't have, I've <laughs> the cellar. unfortunately, as I mentioned, I, I, I couldn't find any, any really great Pinot um, mm -hmm. this year. Um, but yeah, um, and, and, and it probably also, uh, I mentioned earlier a wine that we used to do called Double Barrel, um, which was a, a Tinta Barocca Cabernet blend. Long before Tinta was, um, uh, came on the radar as a, as a potential variety for, for showing the interest of South African wines. So yeah, we've got some interesting things in the cellar and, and I think Roussan, in terms of the white blend um, and maybe even the red blend, Roussan does offer a, a sort of a, a range of, of characteristics which are incredibly, incredibly useful and incredibly interesting as part of a blend, which is why I think you probably in South Africa and certainly other parts of the world, you, you usually see Roussan as part of a blend and not as a single variety. Um, what's been great with our Roussan is, is to, for almost 10 years now is to, is to work with it as a single variety and see what it's capable of as the vineyard gets older. And now I'm really uh, excited about um, using that as a building block for a, for a white or, or, and a red blend uh, going forward. Interesting, because I mean, it seems to me that uh, other producers in South Africa in the sort of the, the more premium space are doing the opposite. I noticed that uh, uh, Leo Passant has, um, they did the, red, the, the dry red and now they're releasing this year for the first time single vineyard wines yes. from that, that, uh, that stable. So they're releasing two single vineyard Cinsos and a, and a Cabernet out of that dry red breakdown or instead of the dry red breakdown. Whereas you're going the other way in terms of making single vineyard wines and putting them back into a blend. Yeah, well, that's certainly a, a path that interests me. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's a very good observation because it, it demonstrates how much of a flux South African wine industry, uh, well, in a very positive way, or certainly the South African uh, boutique producers are in. You know, there's this, there's this wonderful experimentation and, and, and trying things out and testing um, what works and what doesn't work from vintage to vintage. When South Africa emerged from the, the, the old days, it was this great debate, you know, what should we be focusing on as a nation and what should be our signature varietal be? And, and, and I've always said, you know, it doesn't need to be. What, what, one of the great cards that we have in our, in our, in our pack is that, is that we've got this diversity of, of, of vineyard, we've got the diversity of, of um, grape varieties and, and also of, of philosophical approaches to winemaking. So from my point of view, um, you know, uh, as the foundry, I just want to make wines that, 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 that hold my attention and that people will buy and enjoy. So, you know, I, I've never seen myself as part of a sort of a, a great 
um, South African movement uh, going in a certain direction. I, I think it's very positive and very, uh, very good that we're, we're you know, we, we've got this great experimentation, you know, and, and that's shown, I think, um, uh, in the Malinese, you know, they, they, they've got this willingness to experiment and to try different things. Um, and, uh, and I think lots of other producers are do, do the same thing. And only through that process do you find what works and, you know, and what works over time. So it's, I still see, uh, you know, I still see myself, the foundry and, and South Africa, the, the, the new wave, very much in the early stages of our, we've perhaps had the first stage of the revolution, but it's still very much um, an ongoing experimentation, which is, is really exciting, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's, 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 it's a super dynamic environment. People are getting used to change in terms of if, you, if you're not doing anything new, then they quickly lose interest because there's always yeah. someone else doing something new, which is also not that healthy for change for change's sake or change for the market's sake. So yes, it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's very, very unstable in that sense. Super exciting, um, for sure. And there's some great wines being made. I've said this for a few years now, but I think amongst the sort of the, the top third producers, however you, marry, however you want to measure that, I don't think many of them, if any of them, have made their best wine yet. It's super exciting in that respect. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And you need this period of, of experimentation to, to kind of develop those things that are going to have real traction and, and are going to have timelessness in, you know, in the market. And I, I, I'm confident we're going to start to see that quite soon. Um, you know, uh, we're going to definitely move to the next phase, which is the consolidation of philosophies and ideas within an, in individual uh, producers. And I think, uh, you know, with the sort of the generation, you know, I'm probably one of the older members now, but... Uh, Certainly, the ones coming up, you're going to see that that, that um, solidification of of philosophy, and that'll be very much vineyard driven and terroir driven. I think, as it should be, because as winemakers, we can we can respond quickly and easily to what, what what's coming out of the vineyards. But the vineyards, you know, they are much much slower to really show their best. And I think we are at a phase now where we're starting to get a real sense of what um, the Cape's vineyards are capable of. Yeah, I heard. I can't remember who, who this quote is from. It's certainly not from me. But um, someone told me uh, in terms of uh, in terms of fruit, it takes it takes their vineyards sort of fifteen years to to get some to really good fruit, uh, producing really good fruit, and it takes the winemaker about fifteen minutes to fuck it up. So, <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> it sounds like something you'd say, David. Yeah. But it, no, it's just something I remembered. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the curse of the winemaker is that he that he or she wants to do something. Yes, um, yes. And, and they fluctuate. I mean, I, I deal with winemakers a lot um, over the last, especially over the last, since they're coming to this country. Yeah. And the, you, I won't say they because you, I include you in this, they sort of fluctuate between being a servant of nature, saying, no, I just, you know, I just guide the, the fruit through what, what, what the season gives me. Um, yeah. all the way through to the opposite end of the spectrum, whereas, you know, I, I am the omnipotent being in this wine. Without this wine, it is not, without me in this wine, it is nothing because I'm responsible for it all. Um, yeah, and, and at all points in between. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting conversation philosophically with, with winemakers because it depends yeah. on where yeah. on the spectrum they lie. And, it, and, it, and, it, and they can appear at any point within the spectrum. There's no, there's no rationalisation depending no. on what subject we're talking about. People talk either say no, no, the, the fruit's amazing, or down the line they say, well, you know, I really nailed that vintage. I really nailed that. Uh, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I think what, if we have, if we have to look for positive aspects of, of of many winemakers not being allowed near their cellars at this time, is that we might see some of the best wines being not <laughs> uh, in history because they, they, you know, the wine can just go. If, they, if as long as you've kind of got it into a, a state where it's uh, it's not going to kind of go off. 
Yes. Um, Find that someone just by being left alone might turn into something really great. Mm. Before we move on to the reds, let's talk about your philosophy in the cellar with the white wines. What's your general modus operandi with the with the three boundary whites that are, that are currently uh, being bottled? Yeah, um, so, so the, it's pretty similar for all three wines, isn't it? There, there's a lot of similarity. Um, although this year, because I've had uh, a couple of more, uh, been able to do a little bit more experimentation, I, I'm, I'm hoping to bring a couple of more. Uh, uh, aspects into the wines, but um, the, the first step for me is is to, is to start obviously with, a, with, a, with an interesting site and an interesting variety. Um, but given that, I do fall, I think, within the sort of low intervention types of winemaking. So probably where I I do digress slightly is I I, I, I do sometimes and probably more often than not inoculate uh, individual batches. I do have some uninoculated batches, but I. I do use uh, commercial yeast for some of the, the, the batches that I use. Um, but very much it's a question of... Um, sorry, go on. Sorry, no, how do you decide what batches to inoculate and which ones not um, to? And... I, it's a little bit... Uh, it's, it's through experimentation, but it's also through a bit of gut feeling. Um, so I always uh, leave... A, 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 like if we're talking about a, couple, uh, you know, a selection of barrels, I always leave some barrels uninoculated and then I'll... I'll always inoculate one or two uh, or a couple, collection of barrels with a couple of different yeast strains and see what comes out of that. And over the years, I've kind of narrowed down my choices of, of yeast strains that I do, uh, I do use. I'm not wedded to a particular philosoph philosophical approach to winemaking. I'm trying to make wine that tastes really great. That's my first criteria. And then also is to reflect not only the site and the, the vineyard and the variety, but also my own aesthetic. So th those are the kind of um, criteria I use for deciding what to do. Yeah. Um, but it's very much a question of uh, uh, gentle handling, if that's still a, a debatable point. And then, you know, separation of, of different fractions at, at various stages, you know, whether it be press fractions or free run fractions, and get it into pretty much older neutral oak as soon as possible and, and allow the fermentation to start. Um, are you whole bunch pressing? Are you destemming? What's the, there is that a combination yeah, um, of? Again, depending on uh, something like um, Roussan, you have to uh, destem and crush because uh, I think I'd probably still be a whole bunch pressing the Roussan if, if you didn't press. <laughs> uh, is it a gooey, tough. is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, but then, you know, you, you, you try and get it through that press cycle uh, quite quickly because you don't want that juice sitting on those, on those rough, leathery, uh, rust-colored uh, uh, skins because they do get mm. they pick a lot of phenolics. The juice is naturally from phenolic. Yeah, I mean, it's so, interesting because that's, I mean, that's one of the, uh, Roussan gets its name from is that the color that the, great, the, the skins yes, go at, yeah. at ripeness, that sort of russety sort of... The russet color, yeah. Yeah. Almost rusty. It's got that almost rusty color. So, yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's my, my approach is non-formulaic even from year to year, but it's very much... Uh, it's, it's to do the basic well um, and get the wine into barrel if you're going to do it in barrel or, or, or tank if you're going to do it in tank. You know, and then this year, you know, I have been a little bit more experimental with a little bit more skin contact. Um, I've, I've used some amphora and some clay vessels this year um, in, the, in, in the range of wines. Still very experimentally, although I, I am convinced that that is definitely a, a valid approach from a com to create components for blending. I was in Europe last year and tasted various wines and appellations in, from terracotta vessels, and I was really, really impressed from what can come out of that. Um, so this year has been actually quite a lot of fun. It's been quite um, uh, daunting in many ways, but it's been quite a lot of fun because of the, the different um, ways of experimenting with components that are, are hopefully going to be used cohesively in a blend later on. And two red wines, 
currently. So the Syrah, which we've sort of alluded to, which was the longest standing wine that you, you're making, yeah. and then the, the newest edition, which is the, the Grenache Noir. So the Syrah um, has changed vineyards, hasn't it? So you made it yeah, the, from the, the Fora vineyards. So Janine Craven's family, the Foras, uh, had that vineyard uh, up until recently. So you made that wine from that vineyard for how long? Was it 12 vintages? Or Yeah, I think it was about 12 vintages. Um, and this is one of the drawbacks of not owning your... I mean, there's a lot of freedom to, to not owning your own vineyards, but obviously there's also drawbacks that at the end of the day, um, the powers that be sometimes don't want to... don't, don't uh, give you the grapes that you're expecting or hoping for so yeah uh, yeah so the, the the syrah we've over the over the last couple of years particularly had difficulty securing supply of the kind of grapes that we'd like 20 from 2020 we've got uh, two vineyards one in the Paderberg and one in Stellenbosch which um, I'm very excited about I've the one the one Paderberg vineyard is my partner's vineyard syrah which is on the farm where we make the wines mm-hmm. and I've known that that vineyard can produce quality because I, I made wine from it from 09 till I think 2012 and uh, and then my, the, this new Syrah vineyard in Stellenbosch, it's a, a friend of mine's vineyard who's not a who's not in the wine industry, and so I'm certain of of the supply of that, and then also the that what I asked to be done will be done. So I'm I'm much more secure in my Syrah supply now. And then the Grenache Noir, it's from the same supplier that I get my Roussan from, and so that's a very strong uh, and ongoing relationship. So that's that's a good thing. So. Um, but having said all of that, um, on the Paderberg farm, we are, we've planted more Syrah, we've, we've planted Grenache Noir as well, and we will plant our own vineyard of Grenache Blanc to mitigate those sorts of um, grape supply issues which uh, can bedevil uh, a producer like the foundry. Yeah, um, from, a, from a viticultural point of view, I think that's going to be a, a hot topic is grape security. Uh, going yeah. forward in South Africa for the very reasons you've just said, I think. Well, and yeah. plus that the, there's a low barrier for entry for wine producers in terms of if you want to start your own wine brand in South Africa, it's actually not that expensive to do. Yeah, and so in fact, the, 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 the barriers to entry in South Africa are are probably bureaucratic more than more than um, you know supply of fruit or seller space or things like that. Or price, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and price. Uh, um, mm. But that's a uh, discussion for another day. That, yeah, that, I think that keeps the prices low as well in terms of that barrier entry yeah. being low. So anyway, so t- talk to us about the, your philosophy for, for both of these red wines that you've produced. Yeah, so the, the Syrah very much reflects probably the, what I would describe as the initial wave of Syrah mania in South Africa, which was sort of in the late, the early 90s. And, and probably one of the seminal events of that was, was Stellenzer Syrah. 1994, mm-hmm. which was a, a turning away from the old South African way of making shiraz, you know, which there was a, a terrible old adage, you know, you only pick the grapes when, the, when they look like old people's faces, you know, with lots of wrinkles, <laughs> and, you know, almost raisins, which, you know, you're tasting those wines, oh. the, the, the lack of precision, the lack of, of fresh fruit flavor, the, 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 the overripeness, I mean, they were, that doesn't, that doesn't sound wholly surprising in terms of the, yeah. the resulting growth. There were all these old shibboleths and orthodoxies which pertained in the, in, the, in the old way of making wine in South Africa, which they would never been questioned because nothing was ever questioned in the old South Africa. Hmm. And, so they were, and, and when, when light was eventually shined on them, it was like cockroaches scattering from behind the fridge. You know, they proved <laughs> to be completely fallacious, completely counter uh, common sense and so that's that's why you know as i mentioned i graduated in 94 witnessing and then subsequently being part of that that renaissance of winemaking that sort of first wave renaissance 
myself incredibly fortunate. Um, and so, yeah, Andre, this is a very long way to the point, but Andre Ferencberg, from who's now at Fechlech, and you know, was very much an exponent of that new style of Syrah. So he, he made, made the wine. wine. Yeah, he made the wine. And then, you know, my, my classmates of 94, Oyeben, Saadi, Mark Kent, uh, and then, you know, other people from, from Stellenbosch, who saw Syrah as a great, we had this, we had, it was one of the, the, the varieties which we did have decent plantings of, which were not being capitalized upon. And it was also an understanding at that time that Syrah was very well suited to the sort of the Mediterranean climate that we tend to enjoy most seasons here in the Cape, the granite-based soils. So there was that, um, and then we all went to Europe in 94 and discovered particularly the wines of the Northern Rhone, you know, Cotreti, Hermitage, Saint-Joseph, um, these sorts of places. And we, we, it was like, uh, it was like the scales fell from our eyes. This is made from Shiraz, mm. you know, these wonderfully perfumed, linear, p- precise wines um, that, you know, were 12.5% alcohol at the time. And so, you know, the, uh, we came back from that trip, I think, very much having learned way much more in those three weeks in Europe that we learned in class, to be honest with you, uh, certainly speaking for myself. So that was an inspiration. And it took me a few years to really get uh, the foundry together and to find um, the right sort of vines to make this foundry syrup in 2001. And, th- and that's not to say, you know, that I've pursued that exact style since then. There's definitely been an evolution. If anything, there's been a refinement and a sort of a, and narrowing down of the wines, cutting away excess aspects that haven't really worked. Um, you know, and I think that's been, uh, that, that's been very much a trend in South Africa f- over the last 25 years, is that in Syrah is, is producing a very perfumed, floral, linear, uh, wines that are structured, but not big in structure, but just but very intricately structured with wonderful kind of lacy tannins rather than these big oak tannins or, or, or unripe gra- grape skin tannins. So that's been very. Is it, is, uh, is it, do you think it's it, it's a sort of a polarizing factor? You can either have one or the other, or is is it a spectrum? You can sort of sort of slide it up and down in terms of what, what um, what's possible. Sure, I'm I'm not sure. Um, you know, because I think the, the the poles on that spectrum are, are, are on the one side Syrah and the other side Shiraz. You know, those are kind of the the labels, if you like, of the two two different schools of thought. And, there, and there's yeah, but that, that's, I mean, that, that is a, an entirely unhelpful labeling because people who label their wines don't necessarily adhere to that paradigm. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there, there <laughs> are wines out there that label Syrah that are, you know, heavy and dense and, and, and chocolatey and, and jammy. Yeah. And there are wines labeled Shiraz, which are uh, ethereal and light and floral and green. I sometimes think that we, we at the risk of trying to um, simplify it for the drinker, that we oversimplify it so they get confused because what we tell them isn't actually true. We yeah. explain it to them so it's understandable, but we don't explain it in such a way that it is actually relates to reality. Yeah, I, I take your point completely. I, I think that is true because there's, there's obviously no, no controls over what can be called Shiraz and Syrah. You know? So, yeah, I, I take your point. Yeah, I'm surprised actually because the wine and spirits board tends to be quite uh, officious with their um, uh, stylistic varietal labelling. So, which I'll talk about on another podcast, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what sort of um, uh, processes? What sort of um, in terms of philosophical decisions are you making? Are you inoculating all the red ferments or part part of the red ferments or none of them? What's your what's yeah, your take but, there? Um, and, again. Uh, uh, Partly, I'd say half and half. Half the ferment I'm inoculating with, with yeast and the other half I'm, I'm allowing an uninoculated fermentation. I, I think another 
topic for a podcast could be, you know, what is wild yeast? What is wild fermentations? What is, that's yeah. perhaps another day. But, um, you know, the, these, these uninoculated fermentations are, are more what I would call low dosage fermentations. There, there are, there's a sort of a uh, fruit salad of yeast doing the ferment. Um, mm. Some of them are commercial, some of them are coming from the, vineyards but so no one really knows um, do, do but, you think it follows just just sorry a question without notice here um do you think it follows yeah. that good vineyards in better years need less do not need inoculation would that be a, a fair comment would you, would you uh, subscribe I, to that or i don't not? know do, i i don't have the argument answer that because how, yeah. how do you you know how do you quantify and qualify a good vintage and a good year and so i, I well I a healthy know. a healthy vintage i suppose put it that way yeah in terms of the yeah, fruit coming um, in and i think but then I think one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm more on certain ground with is that if you've got those conditions which you feel, oh, yes, I'm not going to inoculate this year, so you, so you don't, you have, instead of having what I think is a lot of people call a wild fermentation, you just have a low dosage, a low inoculation fermentation, which means that the, the, the number of yeast cells is much lower. So you get a very different fermentation dynamic. Yes. You get uh, your spikes in temperature, you get formation of different byproducts, which definitely gives you a certain characteristic. And the reason why I do uh, what I call low dosage or low, low dosage uninoculated fermentations and inoculated fermentations is because it gives me blending components for later. So typically, uh, a batch of wine that you've inoculated with a certain kind of yeast will, will you know, ar particularly aromatically, can give you a, a range of, uh, of characteristics, you know, floral, fruit, those sorts of things. And then uh, another batch that you haven't inoculated will tend to have more savory notes more meatiness, the fermentation would have taken longer, so there'll be perhaps a, a, perhaps a little bit more VA, perhaps a little bit more other fermentation byproducts. So, so the, the wine will have a different character. And what I like to do is to use those as components in the final blend. For me, that's more interesting than having the, 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 the orthodoxy of, you know, I don't add yeast. Again, my, my guiding light in winemaking is wine should be, taste really interesting and delicious. And so I use techniques to, which brings those aspects rather than a, being wedded to a particular philosophy. I being think de being delicious is a good starting point for a wine, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> the reason why I started drinking wine and why I, I wanted to, to go into this kind of as a career. Um, but I think what, what becomes more interesting, particularly on red wines, if, you, if you're talking red wines, is, is tannins you know, and, and how they ripen in the vineyard, when, when they picked, when, when those grapes are picked, and then how they're handled in the cellar in terms of extraction and, um, and, and, and ox use of oxygen and the use of oak or older oak or different vessels um, for maturation. You know, you, that's a way of building texture and structure in a wine, which, which you know, in combination with your other components, you know, your, your aromatics, your fruit flavors, uh, at the end of the day, it gives you a much more cohesive and, and comprehensive wine, which is going to be more pleasurable in the mouth. And, and that's, those are the things I'm interested in doing rather than being, as I say, uh, sticking to a particular orthodox philosophy of wine. I wanted to ask you a specific question about Grenache Noir. There's not much of it mm. in South Africa. Um, more and more is getting planted uh, in the last five years, I think. So we're going to see uh, more Grenache bottlings uh, soon. I think we already are. What can people expect yeah. from Grenache Noir in South Africa and specifically for the foundry? Well, I think, again, going back to being in, living in exciting times, I'm not sure what we can expect from Grenache Noir. Uh, one thing that we, we can easily do with, with young vine Grenache Noir is, is make Charlie Good Rosé, uh, which I think we're going to see a lot of. Where it gets interesting is clonally and with particular, with, with a bit of vine age, Grenache can, um, and, and I think, you know, certainly looking at your homeland of Australia, you've got these wonderful old vine 
quite dense styles of Grenache in the, in the 90s and perhaps being made a little bit more of a, in a lighter touch now. Being a Pinot lover, I think Grenache can, can certainly give you aspects of that beautiful florality, that, that lightness, that, that, that drinkability um, without the excess weight. You know, um, so I, I, you know, I think some people will go down the, the Chateau Neuf route of making quite muscly, uh, big, alcoholic, um, meaty styles of wines. And yep. you know, it has to be seen whether that, that can find a, a market or not. Personally, I'm more interested in Grenache as almost a, a lens to show particular sites, particular winemaking techniques. So to, to cut away you know, excess alcohol, excess tannin, and just have a beautifully transparent exposition of, uh, of site and technique uh, and, and maturation and blending style put together. And so again, the, my Grenache Blanc, that I, the Grenache Noir that I've been doing came, came to me through my same grower in, in, in Stellenbosch. And uh, so it was something that I, I, I didn't have a particular mindset on what to do. So 2014 was the first vintage. And then progressively done less and less and, and just try to show the wine in a, in a much in a sort of pared down way. Uh, looking for, again, I, I think, again, the vineyard was planted in 06. So not looking for enormous amounts of complexity at this stage, but just looking for lovely floral characters, nice red fruit flavors, and quite sort of powdery layered, but not particularly structured, not particularly uh, austere tannic structure. And then, uh, and, and I think to, the, I think- How do you manage them? I mean, Grenache tends to have a, a, a very sort of a voluptuous fruit profile, very juby, very generous with the fruit. How do you manage to sort of restrict that or, or make that sort of more transparent and precise? and still manage the structure of the wine? Mainly it's through the, how you manage the, the tannins, particularly during ferment. And so that, that then to, to step back, a, to go back a step, you know, I think whole bunch uh, fermentation plays a role, a whole berry fermentation plays a role. And so what I've been playing with over the years is having a component of whole bunch, a component of crushed fruit, a component of whole berries. And that seems to... Uh, apart from the stems, which, which bring another dynamic to the to the wine, it also stretches out the ferment because you're getting the release of sugars into the into the juice becoming available for the yeast at, at, at different stages. On the one hand, and then you're obviously you're also getting intracellular fermentation, carbonic fermentation, which gives you an, another whole kind of array of quite often quite simple estuary kind of notes, but in combination with whole bunches, whole berries, and crushed, again it gives you that sort of a kaleidoscope of flavors which I think Grenache particularly lends itself to uh, on the fruit aspect. And then if you couple that with texturally how, what, what the tannins are going to be doing, because you've got, you've had whole bunches, whole had stems, um, and then how you, how you mature the wine, either in barrel or in, in tank, or this year we've done a bit of amphora, which is quite, quite exciting. And then again, come blending time, you've got a whole range of, of different components that you can use for blending. And I think you can, if perhaps the, the original variety and vineyard didn't have uh, a lot of enormous amount of complexity, you can kind of blend in complexity because you've got that, those components. So I think uh, for me, um, Grenache, I'm not sure where it's going specifically, but I am enjoying the journey with it because it's, it is one of those varieties that responds so well. It's a bit like Chardonnay in a way. It, it mm. responds either well or badly to what you do with it. Yeah, um, you're, there's, a, there's a range of styles of choices available. There's a range of things, yeah. So yeah. particularly with, with um, as I've mentioned, with, during the ferment with different whole bunches and, and, and skin contacts and those sorts of things. I think probably the Grenache Noir out of the whole range is probably the least 
evolved in terms of stylistically compared to the others. And that's understandable because it's the, it's the newest it's the newest member of the lineup. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm still having fun and being someone who loves Pinot. And I think at this stage in South Africa, it's probably easier to get your hands on interesting Grenache Noir grapes than it is to get your hands on Pinot Noir grapes. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a, more than anything else, a sort of a climactic situation as well. Yeah. Yeah, in terms yeah, of... I think it's probably easier to... To, to grow uh, and to decide where to grow in the uh, Grenache than it is to grow Pinot. Yeah, and there's probably more, there's, there's really more choices in, in terms of location. Much Grenache, more choices, yeah. yeah. And even if you've got relatively young vines with Grenache, uh, as I say, you, it's, you can still work with it in such a way that you can make really delicious wines where Pinot, you know, you your, your raw material, to make something really great, you really have to start with raw material, which is everything has to have been done right. I think I think that maybe is going back to what you said before about stylistic choices. You're, you've got much less, many fewer stylistic choices with Pinot Noir than you do with Grenache. Yeah, but then, but on the on the flip side of that, um, you know, they do say that Grenache is the Pinot of the South in France. So, from a from a wine drinker's point of view, you can make. Uh, I think Grenache does offer the possibility to to offer wines, perhaps not with the same complexity of great Pinot, but certainly with yeah. the drinkability, the perfumed aromatics, the floralness, and then also that kind of powdery, very subtle tannic structure that, that Pinot uh, can give you. I think making wines which are incredibly versatile for not only just for drinking on their own, but also for pairing with food, much more so than more structured, bigger styles of wines. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes they, that, that phrase, like the Pinot of, uh, of the South or... Um, uh, Muscalese being the, the Nebbiolo of Sicily. I, I think yeah. sometimes what people um, uh, are referring to tongue-in-cheek is that it's, it's the Pinot of the South as the Gamay is to, to, to Pinot in the North. Um, so yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's not, a, yeah. I don't think, an overtly positive uh, <laughs> comparison. <laughs> well, I think there are, there are some fantastic Gamays out there as well, obviously, both like, Yeah, absolutely, can be, can yeah. No, I think, you know, David, probably, probably in your case more so than mine, I mean, you're introducing people to new, interesting wines all the time. Well, certainly not at the moment, but, but in your normal day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm introducing you know, new and interesting uh, wines to myself. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we, we, we touched on, on using, you know, Shira Syrah earlier on, and in some ways using an analogy or a metaphor for people, uh, you know, helps people who are to just coming into wine and who are eager to learn, you know, who've, who've maybe heard a bit about Pinot but don't know that much Nash to say, yes, you know, it's, it's be, to a limited extent, a useful thing to say, well, this is the Pinot of the, of the south of France, and, and, you can, and then you can yeah. kind of say, but again, there's always, expect, there's always exceptions to the rules. So yeah, yeah. there are limitations to these analogies, but they can be useful. Um, just a few more things before I let you go. 2020 uh, vintage, new cellar. Are you seeing a difference in the wines? Obviously, you've been making the wine and the, uh, the foundry wines in the Mueller cellar for over a decade, and all of a sudden you're making them in a new cellar with new equipment and different space, a different uh, yeah. environment. Are you, are you, are you seeing a, a slightly different take on things? And obviously you're being freed up with time and action, and you said you've tried a few different things anyway. But, yeah, um, yeah just wanted to get your, your initial take yeah, I think, just um, post-harvest. What, 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 I, what I tried to do at Mealist and what I tried to do this year is do the basics well. That, that hasn't changed. Whether or not the, the differences that I have picked up are, are from a sort of a, a location point of view or from a vintage point of view, I think it's probably a little bit on the early side to say for, for, at the moment. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I will say that I think the, probably the, the, the biggest break that I've, 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 I've taken grapes in from a, a, a wider source of vineyards this year. Mm-hmm. Um, again, purely looking for those components. So that's something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to experimenting with and having a look at, at later on. But yeah, I mean, I, I think my winemaking philosophy, it does evolve over time, but it's, it's still very much, um, as you've discussed earlier in this interview, you know, is, is to do the basics well, try and allow the, the, vineyard, the vintage, the site to shine through as much as possible. But of course, I, w- I want the wines to, to be delicious. Uh, I've mentioned that a couple of times. Um, but to have a, a, a degree of interest and complexity, which I think which is, re- reflects the kind of wines that I also personally like to drink. I think probably the, the biggest change this year, I, I really was, uh, when I was in Europe uh, last year, I had the opportunity to taste wines from different vessels and I was completely mm. blown away by these Spanish amphora that I, that I discovered there. And I've, I've brought in a, a good, good few of them into, into the country myself this year and I've okay. been using those in the cellar. Um, so uh, and, and what, I think there's two fronts that, that, that those offer interest. They're, they basically become a much smaller fermentation vessel, particularly for reds. Yep. You can do a lot of smaller batch stuff. And then the, the actual um, fermentation, whether it be white wine itself or red um, grapes and, and juice together, or even white fermentation of skin on skins, um, there's a very, um, very interesting kind of, and I qu- haven't quite got my head around it yet, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of, a, it produces something quite different. Cliché of been minerality and there's an earthiness and a stoniness. Hmm. And I, those are so l- less avert fruit flavors. Yeah, less overt fruit flavors. And of course, um, because there's no oak, even older oak, um, mm. you've kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting and something that I'm, I'm really enjoying and learning more about. It's a very interesting, again, component um, to, to work with. So, so uh, people can, you know, people who've been following the foundation look, look towards uh, seeing the results of that probably late this year or early next year. Oh, exciting. Um, yeah, absolutely. We discussed your very amicable separation from Mealist. Do you have some advice, perhaps, that uh, if, if a current winemaker at an estate or a, a big brand was making uh, or wanted to make their own brand and, and eventually decouple from their existing yeah. job, what, what advice would you give them? Sure, that's a really, really think about it because a bit of a reality check, as you know, probably more than anyone, making wine and selling wine is a, is a very, 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 and probably more so competitive thing to do. Um, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to develop my own brand over over years while under the umbrella of a, having a day job. It's been a great uh, privilege, I think. But would, that, but again, would that be one of the recommendations to say, well, well you know, start it now and, and develop it while you still got your day job? Don't just leave it. Yeah, start it. I started as early as possible in your career. Definitely that would be the thing. Um, and I, I mean, I've, I've got a partner, James, uh, he's, he's been a great sort of um, support over the years. I suppose it's, it's depends very much on the person, but um, you know, if you can link up with someone who can bring something to, and this is more of a business advice rather than winemaking advice, you can link, link up with people who are going to bring a different skill set to to what you do. Always helpful, and you cannot overestimate how more expensive things will be compared to what you budget for. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At a zero, yeah. into everything. <laughs> yeah, particularly you know everything. We obviously we work with an exchange rate helps on the selling side but um you yeah know, so it's, it's there are low barriers to entry to producing wine yes, but if you want to import um something from spain to put your wine in obviously the exchange rate is against you then yeah it's 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 it's, it's difficult but um mm. 
and it's a long-term business, you know. So if you've got resources or, you know, and, and having another job at the same time. But again, you know, I would never dissuade someone from someone who's, you know, who's passionate about something, who's thought about it, who's, who's got an idea about something that really has got, can have traction over time. Um, I would say it's a, it's a great way to, to, to live a life is to, you know, is to, is to, is to make your own wine and, and to sell your own wine. It's yes. but by no means easy. Yeah. I mean, I was chatting to Niels Faberg yesterday about how he started Luddite while he was still working for the Beaumonts. And he's another one who's done it successfully as well. So, yeah, it's an interesting, and it seems to be a very common factor in South Africa that uh, winemakers, uh, employed winemakers, end up making their own wine and their own brand. Also, as you, you know, there's, there's so much written about South African wine in general. So, you know, we, we hear a lot of the, the success stories. Um, mm. You see other guys, you know, really, other people doing a really great job and making uh, interesting wines and selling those wines and, and building a good little business. So there's a lot of inspiration out there, um, which is good. But, you know, the old, the old, I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone said success is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And I think certainly making your own wine, and, and which is the easy part, mm. and then going out and selling it um, is tough. So I think have, yeah, you've got to, you, it's got to be something you really love to do. And also try and have something uh, special and unique to offer, whatever mm. that may be, yourself or the style of wine that you're producing. You know, have something which is not just going to be another same as on the shelf. A USP, yeah. so to speak, in the, in the lingo. A unique yeah. selling proposition. And finally, less business orientated and more hedonistic, because let's get into that. Yeah. What, what wines do you, what do you, what wines are you buying and drinking now, um, both internationally and local? Internationally, I've had to curtail ever so slightly my particular... Goodness burger. me. Send, send Chris some money, please. Um, he's obviously yeah, suffering. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Burgundy's been an abiding passion, I'd say, probably for for 10, maybe probably close to 15 years now. And so, so if, I, do you follow producers there or do you follow what do you no, villages? I or tend to what, follow, in terms of appellations. What, what, whatever great domains and uh, wine cellar tend to get, get um, yeah. give you. Uh, so. <laughs> and I, I'd also imported a little bit of my own Burgundy from a friend of mine in New St. George, which I, I do like to drink. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sort of Musigny, Chambon, Musigny, anything from, from those sorts of uh, communes, Particularly, I and Vaughn, Vaughn Romanet is uh, probably my favourites. Mm-hmm. And then, particularly, um, Dujac, Groffier, um, Mayor Camusit, and then Comte de Vogue, of course. But, the, you know, that's, that's, I can buy probably a bottle a year of that. Yeah. Um, but that's something that's for, for very special occasions. Looking, looking at what the Rand's been doing, it's, it's going to get harder and harder. So, yes, um, well, especially for Burgundy, because that's not the only factor. Um, yeah, exactly. Just, the yeah. wines are getting pricey every year in yeah. euro terms, and then the rand is just so. Yeah, um, and, uh, I've I've always like like you, David. I, I've I've loved I love Piedmont, um, mm-hmm. particularly Barolo's Nebbiolo. You know the different sort of uh, iterations of Nebbiolo, um, and I, I found I probably found over the years my maybe you can't apply this to Barolo, but um, I, I tend to drink lighter wines. I've I've mm-hmm. prefer wines uh, again. This word transparent that have this sort of clarity of flavor, transparency, which I tend to be quite idiosyncratic. That's kind of what I, what I love to drink. And then um, locally, I, I have, I kind of go in and out of love with Chardonnay. So I, I think South Africa produces some beautiful Chardonnays at very, very keen prices. If you look at what other, other countries are charging for equivalent quality Chardonnays, I think, uh, so I, I love great Chardonnay from all over the world, but I think South Africa, purely from the price point of view, offers delicious wines uh, in, in terms of Chardonnay. Um, 
Yeah, and then I'm, I've, I've followed... So, into, for, for Shadna, who are you, who, whose wines do you, would so, you, uh, Richard would you point Kershaw, to? Richard Kershaw, I really like uh, what he's doing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and geeks, geek stuff, you know, clonal stuff, the different terroirs, what he, what he does. Um, and then commercially, I think, you know, I think what's, what's been done quite commercially with Chardonnay is quite interesting. Mm. Oak Valley, Kluver, uh, even Donnie DeVette. I mean, you know, Robertson, and this is now obviously a sort of pointy end of the commercial scale. Yeah. Uh, he's got a range of Chardonnays, which, you know, last night I, me and my neighbor sort of slightly broke um, social distancing laws and shared a glass of wine over the... The police will be door. knocking on your door in 15 minutes. No, mate. but we, we did maintain uh, the, the three-meter rule. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay, good. Glass. But yeah, you know, we, we drank a bottle of... Uh, De Vetsoff Estate Limestone Hill Chardonnay, which was absolutely and and consistently delicious, you know. So okay, cool. I think some some people think winemakers live in a rarefied world where we're drinking uh, Montrachet on a sort of a weekly basis. I I drink wine every day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, I try to ha I try to drink less but better, and uh, you know. Uh, so yeah, I mean I, I do drink uh, wines that are, and I must say I've, I've also. The last sort of days before lockdown, I bought some uh, some Maras Maras yes. wine. Yeah, from, from Pekingesburg. Yeah, I bought that at Woolies, uh, a bit of Shannon that was delicious, and and at, at very keen pricing. You know, I think Shannon is 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 offering some very interesting stuff all across the price points. Yeah, I agree. I think might be asking a little bit much of the consumer at the sort of price points that they're asking for Shannon, when you can buy a wine a bottle of Maras for eighty five bucks at, at, at Woolies, which delivers incredible fruit intensity and flavor and, and deliciousness, you know? You know, those wines are delicious to drink, but they, as a producer, they think, wow, how are they doing this at this sort of price, you know? So yeah, I, I think South Africa offers a huge, uh, the Cape offers a huge spectrum of wines for, for drinking. And then if I can also just throw a punt, a friend of mine, uh, a guy called Vincent um, Karem makes, he makes beautiful Vouvray, obviously, but uh, yes. he makes, uh, a wine out in the Swartland, called Terra Brulee, and he does a white and a red, uh, red blend, uh, and apparently it's going to be uh, uh, available in South Africa in the near future. Okay. And he's making incredible stuff out, uh, out in the Swartland as well. Cool. Nice one. Um, and how do we, yeah, how do we get so, hold of that? Who do we need to, who do we need to um, Wine Cellar uh, was selling, uh, selling some of his Vouvray's, and I think yeah. they're also selling some of his, his South African stuff now. If it's not okay. available now, I saw him in, in Harvest Time, it, it will be available in the near future. Okay, cool, so man. Awesome. Well, Chris Williams, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for your knowledge. Stay well, and uh, we'll, we'll speak soon. Thanks, David. Good, good to hear your voice in these uh, interesting times. Yes, thanks, mate. Cheers. All right. Yes.